John chapter 14. I want to read the uh, first four verses, or the first three verses actually, not the first four. John 14, we'll read the first three verses. Where our Lord, speaking to His disciples, says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Leave off reading there in verse 3. We begin this morning in John 14 with a, a time of continuous instruction from our Lord Jesus Christ that culminates in, um, in a, what we call the high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17. Chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 uh, form a body of instruction and prayer where, as our Lord, knowing that He is facing the cross, gathers His people together and instructs them, and instructs them, and instructs them. Chapter 14 ends with them leaving Bethel, uh, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary's house, and, and he and his disciples making the short journey into Jerusalem. We read the last verse of chapter 14 where it says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and the Father gave me commandment, even so do I. And then he says, as he stops that portion of the conversation, says, Arise, let us go hence. And then they, they begin their journey, that short journey into Jerusalem. Chapter 17 ends with him through with his prayer. And 18 opens up with these words. When Jesus had spoken these words. He went forth with his disciples over the book Kidron. Where there was a garden. Into which he entered with his disciples. And the very next verse. Judas shows up. With the people that are going to take Jesus Christ captive. This is the portion of Scripture that we've entered into. It's going to take us some time to get through it. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The word troubled in this text is present tense. Plainly, the hearts of the disciples were presently being tossed to and fro by the waves and the wind, by the events that had taken place in the last few days, and by the words spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ, they had become troubled. Our Lord had taught them that a life following Him as their Lord and as their Savior would be a life of trial. It would be a life of persecution, perhaps even death. He had told them that in advance. Many of the religious Jews had rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and had been actively involved in trying to kill Him uh, ever since John chapter 5. 
our Lord had taken his disciples out of the area around Jerusalem into the wilderness area and spent some time with them there. But when Lazarus died, our Lord told his disciples they need to go back into that area. You remember when we saw that, they all agreed that if they went back, they were all going to die. And Thomas and others said, let us go anyway. And uh, they knew the Jews were seeking for him, and they knew the Jews were seeking to kill him. And at the resurrection of Lazarus, the Jews were angered even more so, and had recommitted themselves to kill him. And in the midst of all that atmosphere, our Lord told his disciples one of them was going to betray him. And he told them that his heart was troubled over the fact that one of them was going to betray him. He told them that he was going away, that the Jews would not be able to follow at all, and they would not be able to follow at this moment, but they would later. And in that conversation, he reminded them, reminded them of his impending death. They still did not understand up to this point that he, they, though they believed he was Israel's Messiah, yet they still did not understand that he was not the Messiah that was going to return Israel back to her glory and her power over all the nations. Our Lord, appointed by his Father to be Messiah, his prophet, priest, and king, and he is indeed Messiah over a kingdom, but it is a spiritual kingdom and not the physical kingdom of Israel. And still they do not understand that. Even in the book of Acts, as he is about to ascend to heaven, they still ask him, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? It was only after they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to understand gospel truth more that they began to see that the kingdom was spiritual. His death would cause many of the father, of his followers to be troubled in mind and heart because they did not fully understand the spiritual purposes of God sending his only begotten son into the world to save his people from their sins. They would be troubled. You remember after the resurrection, he's walking with a couple of disciples. We thought it was him. We thought that this was the one, and they're troubled. They don't understand the scriptures. In the midst of all that, as we saw last Lord's Day, our Lord spoke plainly in front of all the disciples about Peter denying him. Peter was going to deny him three times. And Peter said, I'm going to go with you. I want to go with you. I want to die with you. And as I had already said, all the, other, all the eleven had already said the same thing. And in the midst of that conversation, our Lord says, no, that's not going to happen. You're going to deny me. One of the major leaders among the eleven. Judas is going to betray and Peter is going to deny. And this, this group is shaken. And very troubled. A lot's happened in the last couple of weeks in their life. And our Lord says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you believe also in me.
But he doesn't just stop there in this text with that present trouble that they were struggling with. Because in the next chapters, he begins to talk about the future trouble that will be not only on the apostles, but on all Christians. Every true Christian who seeks to follow the Lord Jesus Christ learns very quickly that when I enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, my life will have trouble. I will be plagued with trouble. In John chapter 15, in verse 19 and 20, he says, If the world, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you back in chapter 13, where he said, The servant is not greater than the Lord, than his Lord. And then he adds these words in verse 20, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if they have kept my saying, they will keep your saying. He continues with this idea that trouble is not only present with him, but it's going to be future. In the next chapter, chapter 16, in verse 33, he says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And then, as he prays in chapter 17, he prays about the very trouble that not only these will face, but that every Christian will face. And in chapter 17, in verse 14, he says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. You stop and think about that this morning. The people that understand the word of God given to them by God that they understand the word of God and that precious gift of understanding what God says in his word causes the world to hate you causes the world to hate you why? because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world he continues to pray in John 17 in verse 14 let not your heart be troubled the apostles took the same teaching and passed it along to those that they would, uh, that they would later, who would later become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, as he's returning from his first missionary journey in Acts 14, and he comes to the churches, confirming the churches, ordaining elders in the churches, says to the ch churches that they should continue in the faith, and that they, we should, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22 church by church as he wakes his way back to his home church in Antioch instructing them that true Christianity means that we through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God on his second missionary journey he comes to a place called Thessalonica and there he preaches the gospel and God saves and a church is organized later in his ministry he writes back to them in 1 Thessalonians and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 4 Paul says and verily when we were with you. We told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass. And you know. We told you in advance that if you become a follower of Christ, trouble is going to, is going to meet you in the way. 
Peter took the same message to those that he wrote to in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says in verse 12 and 13, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Partakers of Christ's sufferings on the world, not his sufferings on the cross. We can never partake in that, but his sufferings in the world, as the world hates him and hates his people. Where does trouble come from? Well, a good portion of our trouble comes from the remaining sin nature that is in us. You can't read the Old Testament or the New Testament without realizing that. David was one of the most notable Old Testament saints, and he declared in Psalm 51, 4, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. The sweet psalmist of Israel. In the New Testament, one of the most useful apostles, writing the majority of the Old Testament, uh, most of the... Uh, many, writing much of the New Testament, says in Romans 7 and verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. The remaining sin that is in us causes us much trouble. As true Christians, we wrestle against it on a regular basis, and when we fall and get back up and are cleansed by the Lord, we are troubled in our soul that we did yet again that very thing that we hate. Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour and he and his minions come against the people of God and against the churches of God trying to bring them to the place where they forsake the Lord and he has caused much trouble in this world. The world in which we live that hates our God, as we have already seen in John 15, also hates us. So we have sin and Satan in the world against us. But sometimes trouble comes from within our own family. I was ministering to a young man who is ministering to another young man <clears throat> last week. And we were talking about that other one. And the struggle that he is having with his family over the truth that he has begun to see. And this young man was saying, I have not had that. And I said to him, it's coming. Brother Pat, you're supposed to be encouraging me. I am. If you're walking with Christ, you cannot escape trouble. It will come your way. And sometimes... As our Lord said from within our very family, as our Lord said in Matthew 10, 36, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Finally, trouble may also come from those who profess to be Christians. We see this in Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 3, 3, it says, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Notice the wording here about the carnality of the saints in Corinth. 
who came behind in no gift, no spiritual gift. They lacked nothing in that church. God had bestowed upon that church an abundance of spiritual gifts. An abundance of grace had been bestowed upon them. Yet in the congregation there was trouble and strife as they began to compare each other one with another. Envy and strife and trouble came into that church. There was division among them. Why does trouble come our way? Why in the world in which we live God has plucked us like brands from afar. God has made us his very own. He has forgiven our sin. He has clothed us with righteousness that makes us acceptable before his presence. He has chosen us out, made us his own. He has gathered us like we were loved ones and jewels in his very crown. And yet trouble comes. There is a teaching today that if trouble comes, you're out of the will of God. If trouble comes, you can't be walking with God. It's all supposed to be happy faces and, and blessing and enjoyment and glory on this side of, the, of heaven. I've said many times that's just not real because it's not biblical. Why does it come? Well, first, I'll remind you again, Satan in the world hates us. And those that hate us, well, they don't mind giving us trouble. But why does it come? Well, the second answer is that because some see our righteousness and realize they are not true children of God. And instead of repenting, they seek to extinguish our Christianity. This is what happened in the, gar- in, in, in the early days of creation when the Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden and their two sons, Cain and Abel, brought sacrifices to the Lord. John records that Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew him? Why did Abel suffer such trouble at the hand of Cain? And John gives us the answer when he says, because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Because Abel was righteous and his works were righteous and God favored him, Cain, instead of repenting, instead instead of laying down his wicked works of self-righteousness and coming to Christ, rose up against Abel and slew him. And our Lord would many, many years later speak of the blood of Abel that speaks from the earth still, crying out for vengeance. But why? Because the world hates us, yes. Because the unrighteous see our righteousness, yes. But there is another reason why. And that is because we have entered into a life lived by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our God allows that faith to be tested from time to time. Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist cries, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept thy word. Again, a few verses later, Psalm 119, in verse 71, he cries again, It is good for me that I was afflicted. 
that I might learn thy statutes. God bringing trial and testing and affliction in his life to better me, to make me better as a Christian, to make me understand the Word of God in a way that I had not understood it before. This truth is carried over in the New Testament as Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 8 through 10. Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Someone has defined that last phrase, cast down and not destroyed, as a boxing term, knocked down, but not knocked out. I think it's close. Cast down, but not destroyed. And then Paul adds these words. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dying to self. Why? That the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our life. Why are we troubled and perplexed and cast down and bearing in our body the dying of Christ? Why is that? That Christ may be revealed in a greater glory in our life than before. God has chosen this as a means to bring us to humility, to bring us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that the grace of God may be made manifest in our life. That when we are weak, God's strength is revealed. And when men look at us and hold us in disdain, God's strength might be revealed. And when men look at us and we stumble over our words and we don't put things in the right way and we're afraid we may have made a mess of the whole thing and we look and God brings something out of it to teach us that it's not about us but about Him. And that we be faithful in the midst of the trouble that we be believing in the midst of the trouble. Let not your heart be troubled. Heart. The word heart refers to that place in the depths of our soul. It refers to our soul too. That place in the depths of our soul where our affection and our desires are. The center of our very being. The soul. The place where we have our thoughts and our passions and our desires and our affections. Where we develop our purposes and all that we will endeavor to do, either evil or good, in an evil way. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's the heart of a lost man. John 9, 3, 19, light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. That's the heart of a lost man. That's the evil side of it. But then God saves us and gives us a new heart. And out of that heart flows something that's good. Matthew 20, 
2 in verse 37 where he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God and with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That's what he's talking about. You have love for God now. And as I've explained that, that love with all. What does the word all mean? Well, if you're 40 years old in the Lord, it means something. But if you're four days old in the Lord, it means something else. When I was 18 and my wife was 17, we got married. We were in love. <laughs> By the way, we still are. But 50 years have passed. 50 years of experiences, of emotion, of passion, of, of thoughts, of purpose, of, of laboring together in the same household for the same purpose of Christ. 50 years later, I look back on an 18-year-old who loved his wife and think, Oh, I did not understand. I did not know. What might be in those days if God had saved me? What might be? And so, love the Lord with all your heart. You say, as much as I know, I do. And I think that's true of every Christian. But then you come along a few more years and you look back on that stumbling, stuttering, falling down Christian in the early days and you think... I loved him. I know I did. But today it's different. I love him. I know I do. I can't express it, but it's there. It's there. And I think it'll be that way till we step off of glory into, into his very presence. And love is made manifest. That new heart that has an affection for God. Or as Paul put it in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, that heart that believes unto righteousness. For with a heart man believes unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. That sinner who from the heart understands that Jesus Christ has died for his sins, that sinner who from the heart understands that Christ was buried and rose again so that he might be clean before God, that sinner that sees in the work of Christ everything that is necessary to present me faultless before the throne of grace, that sinner that sees Jesus Christ as the answer for salvation from the heart believes on him. And it's that heart that Jesus Christ is addressing here in verse, chapter 14, verse 1. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. And then adds, you believe in God? Believe also in me. In these words, our Lord gives us the biblical help for a troubled heart. What is it? What is a biblical help for a troubled heart? It is a true and continual faith in a living God. Believe not only in God, that is the Father, but not only in the doctrine, what I have taught you, that is true, but believe in me, he says. In me, as a personal, living, ever-present, omnipotent Savior. Believe in me. The testimony of the Old Testament is this. Go with me over to Hebrews. I just, 
I, I want to show you something here. Hebrews chapter 11. This is called the faith chapter in the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11. I just want to, to go down through this chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to touch on some verses. Hebrews 11 verse 4. By faith Abel. You see it? Verse 5. By faith Enoch. Verse 7. By faith Noah. Verse 8. By faith Abraham. Verse 11. Through faith also Sarah. Verse 17. By faith Abraham. Verse 20. By faith Isaac. Verse 21. By faith Jacob. Verse 22. By faith Joseph. Verse 23. By faith Moses. Verse 31. By faith the heart of Rahab. Verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword out of weakness, were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight of the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others. Others, those unnamed others, tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might attain a better resurrection. Others who, by faith, had cruel trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned, these others, that by faith they were stoned, by faith they were sawn asunder. Their faith led them to be tempted, and they were slain by the sword. They wandered in sheepskin and goatskin being destitute, afflicted tormented, troubled of whom the world is not worthy all of these by faith in verse 13 of the Hebrews 11 says these all died in faith not having received the promise but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. This whole chapter, speaking of the Old Testament saints, some named and some unnamed others, testify that they believe in God in the midst of their trouble. The testimony of the disciples is... That they believe that God has sent His only begotten Son. They believe God is fulfilling His word and once again visiting Israel. And light has sprung up in that dark, dark nation. The testimony of the disciples is we believe. But now, the one sent from the Father has told them that he's going to die. And they don't understand that. And their heart is troubled. And will be for a few days. 
until he rises, raises from the grave and comes and ministers to them. With an announcement that he's going to die. And everything else going around that's troubled them in the last few days. Our Lord now asked them to believe everything that he had said to them concerning who he was and what he was going to do. This is the place where they're at, at the opening chapter of John 14. Believe me. Our Lord encourages his followers to trust him because he is God. In every aspect of their trouble, brethren, he is an ever-present help. Psalm 46.10. I'm sorry. Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord Jesus Christ, a present help in trouble. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters... I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. I am there. An ever-present help in trouble. Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let, not, let your conversation be without covetousness. And be content with such things as you have in the midst of your trouble. I added that because I don't think it's violating the scriptures. Because all of the scriptures testify that in the midst of whatever situation we find ourselves to be content. Why? Because he goes on to say, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I am present with you. I am going away. You cannot come with me right now. You will come later. If I go away, I will come again. I will receive you unto myself. I will not forsake you. In every aspect of their trouble, he promises to be a present help. In every aspect of their trouble, he alone <coughs> has the power... <coughs> To turn our trouble into that which is good. Does the verse come to your mind and heart? Romans 8 and verse 28. When he said, and we know, Paul is speaking, but speaking the words that God has given him. And we know that all things work together for good. All things, all things, even trouble. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. These things we know. How can we know that? Not because we have a handle on the, on the situation, on the circumstances that have brought things that are troubling to us. But because he does. But because he is God, he can take that and turn that into that which is good. In every aspect of our trouble, He alone can teach us in the midst of that trouble that our part of this life 
Our trouble in this life is not to be compared to that life which we're going to have in the future. Does not he said for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, work, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory? Has he not said that in the scriptures? And it is this truth, you believe in God, believe also in me, that leads to the very next statement when he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. I am able to take that trouble and bring you to my Father's house. Whatever circumstance you may be facing, in my Father's house are the next words out of his mouth. Do not let your heart be troubled. Trust me, because in my Father's house are many mansions. See the connection? The word house refers to God's dwelling place, and here is God's dwelling place to, well, given to us as, a, uh, as the answer, the ultimate answer for the trouble we're facing here. How is God's dwelling place defined in the scriptures? Well, there's one on the earth. Or in the Old Testament, coming into the New, Jesus calls the temple in Israel his father's house. John 2, 16, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. In the age in which we live, after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he testified and credentialized his church on the day of Pentecost. This is where I'm going to dwell. Later the Apostle Paul would write in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how, to, oughtest, how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. What is it? It is the church of the living God. The pillar and ground of truth. The house of God. God's dwelling place in the New Testament is the New Testament church. A New Testament church. God's dwelling place is also called a city. Hebrews 11, we were just there, verse 10. For he looked for a city which foundations, which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham is not looking for a physical city on the earth. All the promises of God given to him that are physical, he looks past them to the spiritual. So one of the ways that we can see how the saints of God interpreted the Old Testament. When you come to Abraham and say, Abraham, what do you think about all these promises? Your physical seed are going to be like the sands of the ocean and the stars in the sky. And he'll say, yes, it's true. God's going to give you this land. Yes, that's true. There's going to be a city, a temple. Yes, that's true. What do you think? I'm looking for a city whose builder is God. That's what I think. My eyes are not fixed on the earth. I'm looking to heaven. Because everything on the earth is going to burn up. It helps us to interpret the Old Testament saints' understanding of what they were given. God's dwelling place is finally, or finally God's dwelling place, is 
the child of God. John 14 and verse 23 in our text here. He says, my father's house are many mansions in verse 1. Drop down to verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words. And my father will love him. He will come unto him and make, and we, uh, and we will come to unto him and make our abode with him. You see the English word abode? It is the same Greek word as the word mansion. We'll make our living place, our dwelling place with him. Exactly the same Greek word translated mansion up here and a place of living, an abode down here. So let's look at that word mansion. In my father's house are, are many mansions. What is the Lord saying to us when he chooses to use this word? The Greek word simply means a dwelling place. It really casts no more light on the subject than that. And it's used sparingly in the scriptures. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the religious world, but the religious world sings about mansions. Um, I looked it up because I had long since forgotten it. I used to listen to it back a long time ago. The song goes something like, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city, where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. In that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we'll never more wander, but walk on the streets that are purest gold. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. And if you haven't heard that, I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying that's how the religious world seems. That's what they're thinking. But is that what God is telling us in this verse? Is God referring to a literal mansion in heaven? Or even a literal mansion on the new earth? A literal house interpreted... As in the same way to something akin to what we live on in this side of heaven? Is that, is that what God is talking about? Is a house? Have you ever thought about that? I don't know if you have or not, but I have. Do you, do, do you realize you're not going to be married in heaven, right? Now, I believe with all of my heart that Di, my sister Diane and I are going to have a love that exceeds the purest moment that we've had on earth in such a way that we cannot express it on this side. The love that is perfected in heaven. But we're not going to be married. Uh, so if I live in this house, I'm not going to live there with my wife because I'm not going to have a wife. What about children? Well, we're not going to have children in heaven either. I believe the same thing about the children that are converted. There's going to be a love that we parents have for them that exceeds the purest love that we can have on this side. Once love is perfected in us. But there's no place for children in that house. Am I going to live in a house alone? Is that what I got to look forward to? Is I'm going to wander this 
broad walls and high ceilings of this mansion alone, just wandering around. Look at this. I've got this mansion just over the hilltop here. Is that what it's going to be like, brethren? Is that really what the scriptures are teaching us? You see, sometimes we take our Western culture and we plant it on the Word of God. And we get these thoughts in our minds and they're there until they're challenged. And mine have been challenged in this area. What is God saying? Is he referring to a literal mansion with four walls, a foundation, and a roof? A literal house? Is he saying that each of his children will have their own house to live in, even though nobody else is going to be in there because each of the other children of God are going to have their own house? Is that what he's saying? Or is he challenging us to think through something else? What is our dwelling place in heaven? First, let me just interject this. In heaven, we are the family of God. Brothers and sisters, God is our Father, Jesus Christ, our elder kinsman. One family. Here are some thoughts I want you to think about. Psalm 96.1 Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Revelation 21, 20, 21 verse 2 And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared for prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This new Jerusalem this city is the elect. You read Revelation 21 and you will see that. This is the elect. This city is the bride. The bride is the elect. It's one city of people. But also, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. My glorified body is my dwelling place. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1. Paul says, For we know that if our earthly house, speaking of the physical body, our earthly house of this tabernacle, he looks at our earthly house as a tent, uh, something that is temporary, something that is weak and frail, something that's folded up and put away. If, if, if our earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved or were dissolved, we have a building, a house of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. What is he talking about in that verse? He's talking about a glorified body being our house, our dwelling place, our place where we can live, we live in a house now, or we live in a tent now. The soul of man is the real person. This flesh that you see is this tent that we're living in. God's going to lay that down one of these days. And we're going to be with Him until the resurrection. And when the resurrection takes place, we're going to have a glorified body, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And that body is a house made without hands by God. Is that our dwelling place in heaven? Well, my answer to all that question is yes. 
My body, the new Jerusalem, my God is my dwelling place. I'm not looking forward to a mansion just over the hilltop. I don't want to live in a house alone. I want to be part of the family of God. <laughs> dwelling with the saints in heaven. You figured out, come to something different, let me know because I want to know as much as I can know from the scriptures what that's going to be like. So what do we learn from the words? I go to a prayer, a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, um, you may, there you may also be. Several things quickly and I summarize. First, very important. We learn that we cannot enter God's dwelling place without the Lord Jesus Christ preparing a place for us in God's dwelling place. We can't get there on our own. We have no right to go into heaven on our own. Our sin keeps us out of heaven. We have no right to come into that place. We have forfeited that right when we fell into sin. In fact, our sin rightly puts us in hell as a dwelling place. I go to prepare a place for you so that you have the right to come in to the very presence of God into heaven. The death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ obtained for us a legal right to enter into God's house and the right to dwell there with Him as His children, as His son and as His daughter. The debt of our sin was paid by Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has done that. That debt was paid. Our sin needed to be removed. We could not enter into heaven with it. A righteousness needed to be put in its place. Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself. He paid for it. And then he took his righteousness and put it on us. So that when we enter into heaven... We're accepted there as righteous before the Father. The filthiness of our sin was removed. And we were made clean and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. So that we stand in the presence of a holy God. He sees a clean, spotlessly clean, justified saint. And when the books are open. There is nothing there that keeps us from His presence. All of it has been removed by Jesus Christ. I go to prepare a place for you. Hebrews 9 says, Christ entered into the... Well, let me read the verse. Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands. Israel's temple, the holy place, that... Veil was rent from top to bottom. He did not go in there to offer a sacrifice. Instead, the verse goes on to say, that was a figure of what is true, but he entered into heaven itself, there to appear in the presence of God for us, in our place, to make a room for us. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. This verse tells us that the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ will certainly accomplish its purpose. 
If I go, I will come and receive you. I will prepare the place. I will accomplish everything necessary. And you will be able to come to where I am. If I go to prepare a place for you. His purpose was to make it possible for his people to dwell in heaven with him. His sheep to have eternal life. His followers to have a home in heaven. And his blood-bought people to enter into the very presence of a holy God. He accomplished that at Calvary's cross. And then he says, I'm coming for you. And this verse... I will come again is not referred to the second coming of Christ. He deals with that later. But this refers to I will come to you in the midst of your trouble. I will send another comforter. But I will come also at the time of your death. Do you remember what happened in Stephen's martyrdom? Stephen is surrounded by the Jews. They're getting ready to stone him to death. And he stands and lifts up to heaven. And what does he see? The Lord standing. I'm coming for you, Stephen. You're coming to where I am. That's a fulfillment of what he's talking about. Now, it includes the second coming. But every time a dear child of God passes from this life into the next it is precious precious is the death of his children and he stands there as it were at the bedside his angels gathered around to usher them into his presence or he present himself you know there's a because we can't see we think in terms of distance heaven's a long ways off we think but in that moment when the curtain is pulled back to eternity There's no time or space with eternity. God is present. God is present. And when that last breath is taken, He's there for us. Are you troubled by your sin? Jesus Christ is the only one who can take it away and prepare you for heaven. Dear Christian, are you troubled by this world? Our Lord Jesus Christ has promised to be with us and to guarantee that we have a place in his Father's house. Set our affection on things above and not on things on this earth. Let's pray.